Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 387 of the Juicebox podcast. Today on the show, we're going to dig deep into an issue that I see people talking about a lot. It's their concern about what happens if they should have to call 911. And moreover, what happens if emergency services arrives and they can't figure out that you have diabetes or they don't know? This is such a concern for people that I wanted to get a a very learned response on it. So I have a special guest for you today. My guest today is Ginger Locke. Now, besides being the host of the Medic Mindset podcast, Ginger is a paramedic and an associate professor of EMS professions at Austin Community College. In other words, Ginger can do it and teach it. And she's had the experience of helping people with type 1 diabetes over and over again. So we're going to get your answers for you. You ready? You're going to like Ginger. Please remember that nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. The Juice Box podcast is sponsored by Touched by Type 1. Visit them at touchedbytype1.org. We're also sponsored today by Dexcom, makers of the G6 Continuous Glucose Monitor. You can find out more and get started with Dexcom at Dexcom.com forward slash juice box. How would you like a tubeless insulin pump? You can get it. The same one, in fact, that my daughter's been wearing since she was four. It's called the Omnipod. And to get a free no-obligation demo sent directly to your door, all you have to do is go to myomnipod.com forward slash juice box. After a couple of quick clicks and a little bit of typing, Omnipod's going to put that pod experience kit in the mail, and then you're going to be able to wear it and see what you think. Both people want to understand this topic, um, but it's it's two different reasons. Um, the parents want to put something on their kids so that, you know, uh, emergency emergency situations, they can see they have diabetes, and adults mainly want to know if tattoos are a good way to to signal. And I started thinking about the topic, and I just thought, why don't we just like why don't I find somebody who has probably had this experience a billion times, right? And I did my research, and you seem to have the most popular, well liked uh, podcast on the subject. So, oh, uh, thank you for course. saying that. No, of course. Um, Introduce so yourself. I've- Sure. My name's Ginger Locke, and I have a podcast for, it's mostly for paramedic students. That was the original idea, and but paramedics that are in the field listen as well. And it's called Medic Mindset. And so most of what I dig into is the psychology um, of paramedics. And a lot of people think when I say psychology of paramedics, they think that means I'm talking about PTSD and anxiety and all the <laughs> mental health issues. And we do you know, that does come up occasionally, but more I'm interested in how they um, make clinical decisions and their thought process under what's usually a stressful environment, but but, but not always, how they um, continue to kind of show up emotionally for their patients, even after like long hours of exhaustion or, you know, you flip flip back from like one, a really acute patient. And then the next call may be something very kind of low acuity kind of mundane if someone just needs help, you know, standing up, right? And they live alone or something like that. Yeah. So how long does shifts usually run? And are you um 
there's uh, throughout the country, my expectation is that there are some who volunteer and do this work, right? And there are some who are paid depending on your municipality. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I think most cities, you know, are paid kind of um, paid services, sometimes embedded within the fire department. But sometimes like, for example, I'm in Austin, Texas, it's a third city service. So you have police, fire and EMS and they're three separate kind of independent things. But then for sure, there's small communities that have volunteer based system. Yeah. Which doesn't mean they're lower standard or anything like that. It just means that those people are – sometimes there's a, a longer response time because there's people responding from home, right? Yeah. So, um, but – Well, we used uh, to where – I, where I grew up – so when I, was, when I was growing up the entire time, my father was always involved in a local volunteer fire department, which I've <clears throat> sometimes come to think of as a way to get away from my mom or a place to drink beer that wasn't our house. Uh, but they <laughs> But they also – you know, I I saw him while I was growing up. You know, there were a, a number of like si- significant emergencies in our town, from car accidents to people, you know, trapped in buildings and serious fires. Some there were some pretty big fires uh, as I was growing up, and my dad was the guy who ran out of my house and went to the other place and got changed and got on a truck and went and took care yep. of it. So I yeah. tried it a little bit in my late teens, from when I was sixteen till I was nineteen or twenty, and. I, I did hundreds of hours of training just hmm. to be a volunteer fireman. Oh, um, yeah. And then we had, um, you know, a, an ambulance service in the town that was partially paid and partially volunteered. And they would, even the volunteers would spend their time, you know, in the house waiting for calls. And it was really fascinating. Yep. Um, really dedicated people, oftentimes not making a ton of money doing something yeah. really difficult, you know. Um, it was, so what about you? How did you get involved and, and how do you practice, yeah. I guess? So I'm, I'm a full-time faculty now at Austin Community College. I teach future paramedics now. Um, I still get to be around patients because we do clinical rotations in the ERs that are precepted by the faculty. So we go with the students and we, you know, do patient uh, assessments and start IVs and um, rounds is probably the, yeah. the common term that people have heard clinical rounds. Um, but prior to that, I was in the field for about five years working as a, a paramedic. And um, I still, uh, where I teach is in the same kind of area where I work. So just kind of networked within the EMS community here. And 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 thinking about your question about the tattoos, I actually talked to some medics, some friends of mine to make sure, you know, that my my experience and what I thought was the answer, I didn't, I wanted to make sure it wasn't unique just to me, that it was, it was kind of the common um, thought process about tattoos or markers or, right. you know, yeah, uh, that's cool. So, all right. So we have your insight plus some other people's, um, mm-hmm. what's the steps to becoming, I mean, do you, is it, a, are paramedics and EMTs are two different levels of qualification? Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So an EMT generally, if you think of it in terms of college based programs and you can become an EMT in one semester, it's a certification course. Okay. Whereas a paramedic is often an associate degreed person, much like this, the similar length of training as a RN, for example, who became an associate degree nurse. So mm-hmm. two years to become a medic. I remember listening. I, I, I'm older than you. Obviously, I'm looking at you and you appear much younger than I am. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I, um, I'm we used to have these little squawk boxes in our houses that they gave to us that just kind of like alerted this high pitched alarm to tell you there was a fire and then you could 
kind of scratchily hear the dispatcher. And I don't, it must have all been like FM or UHF, or I don't know how it worked back then because there was no internet, you know. Um, and you could hear as you were kind of running out the door of your house, you could hear the dispatcher talking. And I always knew if it was an accident that it was going to be bad because the the police on the scene would always want to skip over the medic and, or, or over the paramedic and go right to the EMT. They'd ask for the EMTs like to be so. There was I always felt like there were two different rigs that were. Hmm kind of, you know, stocked so differently. EM, right. Maybe I'm wrong. Sorry to cut you off, but no, no. EMT, EMT, we classify as basic life support, and then a paramedic is advanced life support. Okay. I have it backwards. Okay. Yeah, yeah the yeah, way you yeah, said yeah. it was was um, reverse. Okay. Um, so EMT might, you know, most firefighters are EMTs. They come and they can do these basic life support things, but then often a, par- a paramedic arrives in an ambulance for the tra- for the transport, and they've got a higher level of medical care, IVs, cardiac medications, EKGs, ultrasound, more mm-hmm. toys. Yeah. And, now, and, and additional schooling, additional education. So they think um, in a more um, complex way about, you know, right. uh, what could be wrong with the patient. They do di- what's called differential diagnosis. They think about what disease could be causing this problem. Obviously if it's car wreck, it's trauma, it's pretty straightforward, but in thinking about diabetes, you know, we've got to differentiate things like diabetic ketoacidosis from sepsis, and those two can look a lot alike, or maybe it's both. And and so a lot of our education is teaching medics how to think about diseases and how to sort them without all of the benefits of things like blood labs in the hospital. Okay. We do have glucometers, so we do know blood glucose levels, but we don't have things like lactate ions and um, some of the advanced stuff that's in the hospital. So after I decided that, that I was going to ask you, I put it out to the community that listens to the show, and I got a lot of questions here for you. So I apologize, but okay. I'm going to probably hit you with some rapid questions at some point and uh, see if we can't give people a, a full idea of, of what they can expect from the emergency mm. response if they have a problem. So uh, a lot of people just wanted to know, do you open up the health apps on people's phones to look for the information that they put in there? Yes, we would if they were unresponsive. I think um, if someone is obviously talking, we would never do that. You know, they're kind of in full consenting ability to just have a dialogue. But when people are unresponsive or in cardiac arrest, um, yes, but it's not the first thing we do. It often comes into play a little later into the call. So the one mindset of medics is a find it, fix it approach, right? So if if the person is on their back, unresponsive, and they're snoring or they're gurgling, right? We just open the airway. We do some suctioning. So it's just, we find this, we fix it. And we're not yet thinking what caused all of this. It's yeah. just some, if they're bleeding, we stop the bleeding. Right. <laughs> um, Stay alive. But then minutes into yeah. the call, when you start thinking what caused this and is there anything, any additional treatments, then yes, we start we start looking through, um, you know, looking for insulin in the in the um, refrigerator, looking for papers that look like they might be prescription, you know, papers from the pharmacy or yeah. things like that. Start yeah. going through purses and and stuff like that, looking through possessions. But on the iPhone, there's uh, functionality to get into someone's medical ID. And I teach that. I right. teach that to paramedic students of how to get in there. The different iOSs, I'm talking specifically about the iPhone. Sorry to just be talking about Apple, but oh, sorry, <laughs> um, there for a while, there was a functionality where you just tap, um, 
I don't know what button that is. This is volume. I guess it's one of the the menu buttons right. on the side. You do it five times. I think it opened up the medical really? uh, info. That's interesting. Don't do it. I don't know. Sometimes well, it does I'm other trying. things. I can now pay with my credit card. <laughs> Doing an emergency SOS right now. Yours is calling for help. I, I they just added these tap functions to the back, but that's um, that's bad. That I'm calling nine one one right are now. Are you really? Jeez. <laughs> At least they'll know it's you, right? You can <laughs> say, "Hey, it's Ginger. I'm sorry." <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was a missed call. I I uh, I hit my phone five times on the side because I thought it opened up the medical alert info. All right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> well, we won't try that. That was again. great. <laughs> Please leave that in the podcast. Oh, oh, I'm not taking anything out of the podcast. Okay. Don't worry now about it, that. Now yeah. it did open up my medical ID. It was the third step, apparently. One, two, three opens it. I don't know, but oh, hell, it let's was- go again. Hold on. No, don't don't do it. No. <laughs> I so I know two clicks is to open up app, like Apple Pay, and so I keep running into that. But I'll, we'll figure yeah. it out. I'll tell you what, I will figure it out, and I'll put it in here. Yeah. Uh, but but I think it's going to be of great comfort to the people who ask the questions that you do look because I, I mean, listen, especially for not, you know, it doesn't matter. I, I should say whether you're a parent or a person living with type one diabetes, your thought is, oh my god, if my kids alone. Is someone going to know if I'm alone? Is someone going to know? And and that kind of brings me to um, what should someone do when you arrive and there's a person with diabetes who's struggling? What should I be telling you? Hey, they have type one diabetes. Like, what do you want to hear from people that's that's helpful and actionable? And what's too much? You know right. what I mean when people start telling you their life story in a weird situation. I I of course yeah. Um, so generally, we want to listen, and that's called the op- that that what you just said. This telling them the life story. That's called the opening monologue, and we it's actually part of training to try not to interrupt that initial what's called the chief complaint. It's like, why are we here? What are what is what is your need, and what are we trying to address? Okay. But I think of you, for example, being a parent of someone or having a family member who has type one diabetes, and let's say they were critically ill. I th- I think because you've lived with the disease for quite some time now, you would know to say um, they have diabetes, they're unresponsive, and then we're going to do a little bit of work, uh, you know, for a couple of minutes. But then all that additional info is going to be port- important, like when were they last seen okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's helpful to tell us that they have diabetes, but that, that can also do something called um, – I think it's called triage queuing where you're basically sending us down a path accidentally. Yeah. So it's, it's good that we know, but we don't want to only think, is this just diabetes? Could this be also, could this be something else? Could this be a stroke or something else? So um, it's funny. I employ a similar idea when I'm interviewing people on the podcast, you don't want to say something that takes them away from their thought or mm -hmm. leads them to, uh, you know, believe that they've come to some conclusion and it might be false, you know? So this person has type one diabetes, they use insulin. We mm-hmm. just ate and now she's unresponsive. I think she had too much insulin. 
or she's generally like, would it help to know this is a generally healthy person versus someone who's struggling? Like, yes. You, you so know what I mean? if we know this is out of norm, right? Normally, this is well managed diabetes. This never happens. This right. is, some, and then we think, oh, that it's important that we know that the patient has diabetes, but maybe. Um, I don't want to get tunnel vision on that one possibility. I, I want to remember, oh, just because they have diabetes doesn't mean they can't have all these other health problems. Right. And and indicate quickly type one to type two as well. Um using insulin, not using insulin. I think knowing that someone uses insulin helps because that means that they're at higher risk for a sudden drop in their blood glucose levels, right? right? Hypoglycemia. So in an emergency situation that the person's not expecting the difference between type one and type two is not as important as they use insulin or they don't use insulin because metformin is not going to make you pass out, for instance, um, like that. I get that. Okay. Um, do you guys use glucagon? Do you carry it? Will you use the yes. person's? How does that work? Yes. I have, when I was in the field, we had glucagon. We used it. Um, and then I also had patients who had it at home and could give it to themselves. And they had already use like an auto injector to give themselves glucagon. And when I got there, they were starting to get a little better. Right. So it takes some time. So yeah, yeah. glucagon is, as your listeners, I'm sure know, uh, releases uh, glycogen stores from the liver. Yeah. Um, but yes, we have glucagon for that. And then also for um, some other things too. No kidding. It actually has indications for other non-diabetic emergencies. Slows down... GI tract, right? Is that one of the things it does? I, I had somebody on uh, here who told me they use it in some surgeries to keep people to slow people's GI tracts down. And it's, huh. all, it's interesting. I, I guess it does a lot of different things. Yeah, it, it very well could, yeah. as I'm thinking about kind of its mechanism of action. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So do you have any stories that stick out? Because I'm thinking about a, a close friend of mine who lived his whole life with type one and, you know, fell out of bed because his blood sugar was low and broke his arm, you know, got so low that his family couldn't help him. I'm I'm wondering if you have any that, that stick in your mind. I think they, the extremes, right? The hypoglycemias and the hyperglycemias, I think they all stick in my mind because they're pretty extreme presentations. Okay. Right. The DKA patient. That's a perf they're profoundly ill. Those are ICU intensive care unit. They're going to end up in the ICU. And so they're very obviously profoundly sick. Yeah. And same for hypoglycemia, right? When they're unresponsive or altered. Um, they're, those two, DKA and hypoglycemia, are not very quiet presentations, mm -hmm. right? They're very in your face. The one that's sneaky is the hyperosmosis molar hyperglycemic non-ketotic syndrome. Um, I don't know that one. Tell me. Well, you don't know it because type 1 usually results in DKA, whereas type 2 diabetes can result in this other hyperglycemic condition when they're not ketotic. They're no, they're, they don't have um, ketoacidosis. But their blood sugar is still super high. What yep. And what so happens? they're just sitting there actually not looking particularly sick because there's no acidosis, but they're blood sugar is very, very high and they're very dehydrated and all mm. that. Wow. I, I know mm -hmm. I've, I, I just had somebody on recently who talked about as they were going to DK, he described it as it felt like the devil was inside of him. Just a burning mm. chest and thought he was mm -hmm. going to die. Just kept telling people when he got to the hospital, I, I feel like I'm going to die. Um, yeah. So that's crazy. So you guys have to show up in all of these situations. It really did strike me when you said earlier, and I, I, I let it get by and I shouldn't have, that you could go from a situation that's 
you know, an overdose and get back in a rig and drive somewhere else and somebody cut their finger making, mm-hmm. you know, making dinner. And you're yep. probably still all like, Ugh. like, how do you, how do you stay level or is it not possible all the time? Um, I think the fact that it's work helps a little bit of, you can be more objective, right. Than if it's your family member. So mm-hmm. that what, you know, what you just said, the, uh, yeah. um, we, it's our goal to not really get, to, to maintain that. just a little tiny bit of emotional or professional detachment, yeah. right? We don't um, get quite there. We have empathy, but empathy can get so deep that you're actually experiencing the other person's trauma. You know, it's, it's, that would be terrible if you kind of went down that. Yeah. You're there to help so far, not to freak out <laughs> yeah. with them. Right. Yeah. I have to tell you, but I think, of a, I think we have it tough, but we get a little bit of wind down and wind up time. So we get to, you know, clean up the, the truck and do a kind of tidying up and then wait for the next call. I think I've also, I've watched ER docs that will be doing cardiac arrest in one room. And then minutes later, I'll see them in another room, just sitting talking with a family member about something kind of mundane. And I'm like, that seems like a lot of whiplash. Yeah. It's, there's definitely a skill. We, we came up on a car accident one time that seemed kind of benign. And um, we were told to we were going to we we're going to have to extricate they told us and as we were getting stuff together i sneaked i looked in the car to kind of try to get my vibe for what it is we were going to do and there was no one in the car and so i turned back to the the officer on the scene i was like there's no one in the car and he pulled me aside and said it's an older woman she was like in her 70s and she had not been wearing a seatbelt the force took her into the footwell and she was under the dash like Mm -hmm. folded in half under the dash alive. And I was, I just, that, that was the moment for me where I realized I actually did have it in me to hold it together and still do a thing because I feel like if I didn't, I would have found out that one day, you you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like I've, I'd seen dead people, dead people wasn't too bad. I've smelled burning bodies like that. That didn't get me too bad. But this one, for some reason, like as I, as I, was living through it and then looked back at it later. I was like, Oh my God, she was, she was broken in half, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I still did my job. So I was like, Oh, I might, I might be okay at this, you, you know, because because yeah. of that exact same thing. Cause if anyone was going to go running and screaming, that would have been the time <laughs> it was horrific, you know, really crazy. Um, mm-hmm. when a person's with another person with diabetes, say mm-hmm. they've had, or they're having a seizure, is there a way to articulate this without you believing that they've OD'd? Like, are there words to use or not use so you don't get confused? Hmm. So you're saying you're, you're the person you're with is having a seizure and you believe it's because of a diabetic origin. Right. Hypo, hypo, hypoglycemia is what would cause yeah, that. Yeah, hypo, right, yes. Um, or they're unresponsive or they're, you know, yeah. aggravated. And you want to quickly Which, communicate, hey, we're not, doing opiates here this isn't part of the opioid epidemic right right how do you start with this is not narcotics this is diabetes in a way that you'll believe it because people will lie about drugs thinking that there's legal ramifications on the way right Mm -hmm. okay uh no yeah sure i'm sure they do we try to get that you know across to them that we would never and it's in fact illegal for us to as healthcare professionals to that's your protected health information. We try to communicate that, but sometimes we arrive in uniforms that look a lot like cops and it's it gets real messy and confusing or the cops show up also, right? So they're there at the same time, yeah. Um, I think, you know, saying 
that you know the person, that they have diabetes, that this sometimes happens when they have uh, hypoglycemia, and probably just saying, um, if you're concerned about, you know, recreational drugs we we don't use or we don't use anymore, or we haven't used today, or um, just directly saying it. Yep. I, I think medics are incredibly non-judgmental about recreational drug use, right. and they really just want to know what they're dealing with. They're not. Yeah. It's not um. It's zero judgment, and it's understandable that the general public wouldn't know that, right? Yeah. So clarity, just just it's just, just throw data. it out there. Yes, I'm. We're, we're, this is not drugs. This is diabetes. Please think about that as you're going towards it. Or mm-hmm. I know this could look like something else, but it's not. Does DKA look like intoxication? It can smell like it, unfortunately. Really? So you breathe off um, ketones. It has an acetone smell that to some people, it can smell like metabolites of metabolizing alcohol. Okay. Like fermentation almost. Yeah, it just kind of smells sickly sweet. Yeah. The the way. um, Sweet breath was one of the ways we figured out my daughter had diabetes all those years ago. Yeah. And then again, she was two. So I guess I wasn't thinking maybe she had too much rye brandy or something <laughs> like that. So, um, that. Okay. So there can be that. What about the mm-hmm. combativeness with those low blood sugars? Like I've, I've heard stories of, a, of grown adults whose blood sugars get low, not so low that they're unconscious, but they mm-hmm. all of a sudden they're like the Hulk and about yep. have the way to, they can't think either in that situation. Yeah. I've, I've run those calls. Yeah. What do you do? Um, so often they're sweaty too, a lot of um, pale and sweaty, and so um, it kind of be a, it can kind of be a handful. Um, we have general approaches to what you might call an agitated patient or combative patient. I don't really like to use the word combative. I think of it as more agitated. Like it's often in fear, yeah. you know, that people become so non, you know, not able to kind of follow along with the sequence of events that normal person would lose the vibe Um, of society you know and i guess combative i i get your feeling i didn't mean to cut you off but combative gives the overtone that they're purposefully not yeah doing it right yeah i hate that word yeah i i prefer more agitated because it gives you a sense of what's going on in their head right Mm -hmm. they're going through anxiety and um confusion so um we basically have two two approaches. One is physical. Like if, if someone were truly combative, like swinging at you, there's uh, basically two approaches. One is physical restraint and the other is chemical restraint. And both can be used in conjunction as well. I think chemical kind of sedation is the humane thing to do. You wouldn't want to physically hold someone down. Right. Because um, that could be dangerous for them, but then also just like psychologically terrible. Mm-hmm. Um we uh, usually try to give them uh, glucagon or some dextrose. You know, we try to first discover that their blood glucose is level. So that means we have to stick them to get a little bit of blood. So that's sometimes exhausting just to even get a little blood because yeah. they're, they're not liking that. <laughs> I can tell you that even at a, a reason, there's a, a spot in my daughter's blood sugar where she'll stop caring. Like, like mm. it's like in, you know, I'll say, hey, test your blood sugar. She's like, oh, I will. And then it say it keeps falling. And it gets to a certain level and, you, and you'll say like, hey, you know, this is becoming a problem. Like you really need to check and eat something at this point. And she'll get like it's it for her. It's very um, jokey still. But she's like, well, if I die, I die. Like she and she's not being funny anymore. And she just gets into kind of like a 
it, it it's like a twilight almost where she's just yeah. sort of like hey whatever happens detached. happens yeah a little detached is, is a great way to put it or dissociated and you yeah. kind of have to keep pushing her towards it or kind of you know take something to her and say look do it now it doesn't happen a lot but i've seen it happen enough to to recognize the repetitiveness of it mm-hmm. let me ask you a couple of questions about about how people can help you if they're by themselves so people want to know about tattoos ids you know watch bands people now have like uh you know apple watches and there's they make these little snap on things on the bands that that people put stuff on there a QR code bracelets. Do you guys scan QR codes? If you're using an insulin pump with tubing or you're on multiple daily injections and you'd like to be on a pump, this little bit here is for you. The Omnipod tubeless insulin pump has been a mainstay in my daughter's life since she was four years old. She's been wearing an Omnipod every day for I think about 13 years now. And it's been a friend in her life with type 1 diabetes. Not only is it tubeless, which is amazing because you can wear it anywhere. You can keep it on while you're swimming or bathing or playing soccer. You know, or whatever you're doing with like friends or acquaintances. You get what I'm saying, adults, right? Like you can just keep it on. So you're getting your insulin the way you're meant to be while you're doing everything. But for those of you who are still MDI and you're like, I don't know, it's going pretty great. I'm sure it is. And I'm not pressuring you. You don't need an insulin pump. But I want you to think about, do you get low like at the same time every day, like three o'clock in the morning or something like that? Or do you rise up at the same time every day? How cool would it be to be in charge of your basal insulin, to be able to make it stronger or weaker so that things like that don't just, you know, quote unquote, happen to you. If you're always getting low at 1 a.m., you could set a basal rate that begins, you know, like an hour or so before that would impact that. Same thing for rises that happen in the morning, all kinds of stuff. Being able to manipulate your basal insulin with a pump is next level stuff. Being able to do it tubelessly, that's even better. But here's the greatest thing about Omnipod, in my opinion, and I I mean this. You don't have to listen to me because they'll send you a free no-obligation demo. You can try it on to see what you think. And then if you like it, you move forward with the process. And if you don't, it's no big deal. It's up to you. That's how it should be. MyOmnipod.com forward slash juice box. Get that pod experience kit coming to you in the mail right now. Guys, the Dexcom G6 Continuous Glucose Monitor is maybe one of the most important tools you can have while you're managing insulin. Why? Because you can see the speed and direction that blood sugar is moving when you wear the Dexcom G6. You can see it right there in real time. And it's not just I'm rising or I'm falling. It's I'm rising and this is how fast I'm rising or this is how slow you're falling. It's spectacular technology. Imagine you're just doing a finger stick and you find, oh, my, my daughter's blood sugar, it's 135. Is it 135 and stable? Is it going up? Is it going down? There's no way to know with a finger stick, but with Dexcom, there is. And you can see it right there on your cell phone. You understand what I'm saying? You can follow a loved one, a child or a spouse, brother or a sister on your Android or iPhone device. Not only can you follow them, but so can nine other people because 
the user can have 10 followers if they want to. That could be a school nurse, a babysitter, so many options. So many people who are able to help you with your blood sugar. Hold on a second. My wife's walking in. Okay, I got rid of her so that I could tell you Dexcom.com forward slash juice box. Dexcom is going to give you an honest chance to keep your stability where you want it, your A1C down, so the time that your blood sugar spends in range is greater. How's it going to do that? Well, it's going to tell you what your blood sugar is and how fast it's moving. And that's going to give you an honest chance to use your insulin. Trust me, it's how I do it with my daughter, and her A1C has been between 5'2 and 6'2 for coming up on seven years. There are links to all of the sponsors at juiceboxpodcast.com and right there in your podcast player. But for today, you're looking for dexcom.com forward slash juicebox and myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox. So people want to know about tattoos, IDs, you know, watch bands. People now have like, uh, you know, Apple watches and there's, they make these little snap on things on the bands that, that people put stuff on there. A QR code bracelets? Do you guys scan QR codes? Like, what? what's the good thing to do here? Or should I just put something on my wrist that says I have diabetes and tattoo it right on me? <laughs> the main thing you want to communicate is that their blood glucose level should be checked, right? And so right. just saying diabetes, even not even getting into the type, just saying that the patient is diabetic means we will. And honestly, even if someone's just has altered mental status, we check the blood glucose level. It's a screening tool. It's a very low risk, high benefit screening tool to I just see. take a little tiny bit of blood. It's a very inexpensive test um, to know. And so even patients where we have very low suspicion that the blood glucose level is off, we'll You're take testing. that as readily as we would take someone's temperature, for right. example. So you pull out a glucometer and you test somebody's blood sugar. It's a, it's one of the basic tools. It is a very basic vital sign. Yes. Okay. okay. Um, but to to your question, I think it's a good one of, you know, maybe how do you get that medic to check the blood glucose earlier in the call instead of, uh, I think of a call I had once where it was this older gentleman and he was having unilateral neurodeficits, so kind of droopy on one side. And we were so certain that it was a stroke. Um, but then finally, very late into the call, we got a blood glucose level. It was very, very low. He right. was hypoglycemia. And apparently hypoglycemia can cause unilateral neuro deficits, which is bizarre to me. I don't know how that would happen, um, but it can. And so we, we misunderstood what was going on with them till pretty late in the call. Mm -hmm. um, but the way to communicate that information to medics would be to me, um, a necklace or a bracelet. That is the universal way. All the fancy tech stuff is nice, and probably more aesthetically pleasing to the typical person mm -hmm. that has diabetes that doesn't want to be walking around with those bracelets and um, necklaces on. Um, but it's just, it's quicker when we see a, a necklace or a bracelet that's got the little engraving on it that says it. Yeah. So say it's a bracelet. Say I'm a girl. Mm -hmm. You're looking mm -hmm. at me now. You're probably having such an easy time <laughs> imagining that. Uh, but say I'm a girl and I'm wearing a bracelet that has charms on it. I can't just throw one charm on that's for diabetes. Nope. Like you're not going to sit and pick through my no, charms. I will never notice that. Right, right. And actually same with tattoos. So this is a conversation I have with other paramedics about do you – I ask them, do you look at people's tattoos? And they said – the general response was, yes, we notice people have tattoos. We would not be looking at the content of what – 
the actual image is until later in the call with a stable patient as a conversation starter, <laughs> but it would never be, I'm scanning this for data that can help me take care of this person. Right. So you're looking at it in a very, with a di- different filter. Um, so do you think, I mean, there- I, if it was tattooed right across a chest, <laughs> yeah, diabetic, that's I what might, I was going to say, right? <laughs> yeah. It's pretty obvious, so- but if it were something subtle or small, it would, could very easily be missed. It's just Right or decorative in in a sleeve of tattoos. Yeah. You don't, you're not picking through it. But if someone had no tattoos and tattooed around their wrist where you were looking for the bracelet and said type one diabetic, that's as good as a bracelet. You would think, right? Or I don't think it's as good as a bracelet. Wow, because you're looking for the bracelet. Because I'm looking at tattoos and thinking that's a tattoo, and I don't. There's no data in that for me, other than this is just a person that has a tattoo. Okay, but it. I'm not looking at it for. I mean, sure, I may see it and it may be helpful, but a bracelet is, it's, you know, those really ugly bracelets that have the terrible chain and the, the rectangle and they're just so uniform and so kind of institutional looking. Those are the ones I'm used to seeing. Do you know the ones? (laughs) I do. So what you're saying is the classic medical ID is what you're looking for because that's just, it's what you're trained to do. It's what happens more over than not. And you're also in a heightened situation at that moment too. Correct. Yeah. So you're you're working on a little less cognitive bandwidth than somebody who's relaxed. Mm-hmm. And you may get there, it just wouldn't be as quick. So you'll get there after you've done a couple of things and you're kind of your physiology's calming down and your field of vision expands a little bit, then you'll start noticing those little things. I've talked to people about their tattoos a million times, but it's right. when everything is stabilized and afterwards. So if Mike Tyson got a face tattoo that said type 1 diabetes and you rolled into the room and he looked low, you might just look at him and go, I don't see that and keep going. I I get that. I really do. So there's this extra thing that doesn't belong on the body and that draws attention. It looks like all of the other things that that do that job. And so that makes your brain stop and go, that's a medical ID. Yeah. Right. It's about picking a lot of what we do is pattern recognition because we're moving so quickly and thinking so quickly. And there was a study done um, for radiologists to find, they were told to find basically cancer on all these CT scans, okay. right? And they're black and white images. And they were told to find cancer, to just screen these C- CT scans quickly for, do you see anything that looks like a mass? Chest CTs. And because masses or cancer usually shows up as white on a CT, they missed, there were all these little black, tiny they placed a tiny black gorilla in all the CTs and they did not see the little thin outline of a little black gorilla on a CT scan because they weren't looking for that. They They were looking for white. Yeah. Okay. And so it's just what your body, your brain kind of selectively notices and, and the, the way a medic thinks is not to go hunting through tattoos. They're looking for, um, yeah, other stuff. Oh, yeah. So I have a tattoo on my shoulder or my forearm, and I'm wearing sleeves, and nobody's finding that. Not until later, you're, probably. You're, uh, you, you know, you point to your forearm. I think about that's where we might put a blood pressure cuff or an, start an IV. I mean, those are arms are better than legs. If you're, yeah, you're not. You're, not, you're definitely one. not. You're definitely not taking my pants off during this situation. <laughs> I guess. <got laughs> I mean, sometimes actually we do make patients all the way naked just to go hunting for uh, lesions really or. Crazy. Yeah. injuries and the stuff like that. But but, yeah. but okay, but I but I hear what you're saying. How about in the car? Um seatbelt 
how about those things that go on the seatbelts or stickers on the window? Do they kind of fall in this? How do I how do I brand my car? Say I've got a 17 year old driving with type one diabetes. How do I make it so that when you come to the door, you know, this person has diabetes? I think even if it's on the car, I don't know that that person that is that person's car. Right. So we're often the, the way our mindset is we're thinking I want to keep all the possibilities open. So yes, I have this piece of data that says somebody put that sticker on there, but I don't know if it's specific to this patient. Right. Maybe so I don't you know eventually. for sure that conclusively right. that that patient has diabetes. And when we're and when we are branding things, is the caduceus the most like thing that makes you think medicine? It's that I, I, Is that the snake thing with, yeah. the, with the rod? I like that you said it like that. Yes, it is the snake <laughs> thing with the rod. Yeah, yeah, that's the one in red. Am I so old that I know words for things people don't use anymore? <laughs> is what I just started wondering. <laughs> no, it was just kind of, is uh, a good word. Now, I've forgotten it. Now I'm wondering why I know it. <laughs> um, so, okay. So, I mean, so it's just like the tattoo then. You can do as much as you want to hopefully trigger that emergency person's thought to like, oh, diabetes. But mm-hmm. until they go through their process and do their things, they're they're not going to know for sure without that that jewelry around the neck, around the wrist, or something in a wallet of someone will help as a, well. So we card. will pick, we will look through a wallet looking for prescription, you know, medication lists or names of, you know, some people have that they've had a surgeries, certain type of implants and stuff in their body. They'll mm-hmm. have little cards in their wallet that we'll find. What about a lock screen image? What about I push the button once, the lock screen pops yeah, up and it says that's I great. have type 1 that, that, that actually is pretty genius. Okay. Huh. That's right. that's pretty smart because we will go to the phone pretty quickly. Um, and I've watched at the hospital, social workers, really just the phone is the lifeline to getting to the family and trying to figure out who people are and kind of doing all that detective work. Okay. All right. Well, there, there you go. Finally, the cell phone, not ruining lives, saving lives. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anybody's seen the, uh, there's that Netflix documentary about social media right now that tells you everything about your phone that you already know is wrong and how it's trying to kill you that you choose to ignore because you love it. <laughs> and it's not, and it's not killing you immediately. <laughs> so you're just yeah. like, I love my phone. Please stop saying bad stuff about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, let's see. While, while people are waiting for you to get there, mm-hmm. what do you think people fail to do in that time when they're panicking? Like, what could they be doing? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Is there something sure. you have to talk about? Rather than saying what they've failed to do, I could just kind of list off some useful things to do. Um, clearing a pathway f- between the road and where the patient is. So if they're in a back room, right, moving things out of the way just to get a stretcher through or even be able to walk through with bags, Mm -hmm. clearing that pathway. Um, As far as sick and unresponsive patients, many of your listeners may have heard of what's called the recovery position, right? This is laying on the side that allows kind of, if they were to have any vomitus or spit to kind of drain out of their mouth uh, with gravity towards the floor rather than back into their, their airway. Um, Coming outside to, to meet, the fire truck or the ambulance is very helpful as well. Sometimes homes aren't very well marked or an apartment complex. It's maybe hard to figure out exactly where you are as quickly. It could save, you know, a minute or yeah, two right. if you were to come out and be what's called a flagger where you kind of wave down the the responding. Um, it's a good idea. 
That really is. Get well, lights on on the outside of your house, stuff like that. Yeah, make, make turning it, lights on. That's that's a great one, especially at night if, when the lights are on. I'm like, oh, I know it's that house yeah. because every, all the other houses look asleep. It's three thirty in the morning. This house is lit up like a disco <laughs> yeah. ball. I bet you they're the ones that called us. Um, yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, and then and just then assembling medication lists, putting all the meds in a, a little baggie that we could take with us. Um, just kind of assembling some key stuff that if we needed to leave quickly, that stuff is all together. And I guess too, if you're you're likely going to take this person with you, if they have some personal uh, stuff that they use to manage their type one, they're going to want mm. to make sure that gets in the rig with them and or somebody goes with them too, if, if possible. Do you like yeah. to take a family member if you can? We do. So COVID times has messed up all taking all the family members <laughs> and things like that. But yes, let's talk non-pandemic times it's great to take a family member, especially with patients who are unresponsive because they're they're all the info. They're okay. the patient's history. So we talk about when we do assessments, there's a history and a physical exam. And when a patient's not talking, you have zero history and you only have your physical exam to rely upon. So they become the surrogate historian. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Hey, when I call 911, can I say I need an EMT, not just a paramedic? Will they take me seriously if I do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, they'd be like, hey, who are you, buddy? I know you've seen ER and everything, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so you said it in reverse again. So you oh, may wait, be messing yourself up. <laughs> what do I mean? All right. Can I? Well, okay. So here, right. it, it, when you call 911, they will have already a pre-planned response. Right. That is appropriate for whatever. If your job is to report what's going on where you are as best as you can, right? right. Is the patient breathing? Is they, are they breathing strangely? Are they bleeding? Do they have a pulse? Mm -hmm. Are they talking? Those are the types of questions, very simplistic questions. And then the response will be um, kind of triaged through dispatch about what resources should be sent. Okay. So I shouldn't get all, obviously I definitely shouldn't <laughs> because I'd end up asking for the wrong thing. <laughs> I'd be like, I need the guy that went to more school. And then I'd say it backwards and they'd be like, Oh, he only wants this. And they send over four band-aids and a nice kid who's on his first day. Uh, so, um, all right. So yeah, so don't, don't outthink the situation because obviously you're going to do it wrong and, um, and be very clear about what's going on in that assessment when you're talking to 911. All right. That yeah. makes more sense. Yeah. Um, and the first question that's usually asked is not what's going on, but where are you? Okay. Like, are usually you in a car? Usually they'll say, what's your, your location? What's your location? Um, not what's your, we think they answer with what's your emergency, um, but it's not. They, they want to know where you are. And then once they start hearing what's wrong, then they'll start sending people to that location. Gotcha. Because uh, I mean, no one can do anything until we know where you are. Yeah. Everything's on pause right. until we know that. Yeah, you're in a medical crisis. I'm as as if I'm the responder. My first crisis for me is getting to you, and then mm -hmm. figuring out what's like you said, going through those checklists and getting to let's not let you die before we can figure out the bigger problem, mm -hmm. and then stabilize you and get you to the hospital if that's necessary. Mm -hmm. How how many people have you treated with with a diabetes situation and left behind versus take them with you? How often do people have to go to the hospital? Is it for the hypoglycemic patients that are awake and talking and breathing when we get there? Um, it's rare that we would transport them because what they need is food. Right. They so need... once they have it, they're there. Yeah. 
we will discuss, you know, what may have caused the hypoglycemia. Was it too much insulin? Was it that you have an underlying infection that you didn't even realize or, you know, and that maybe there's something more going on today. So it, it's not just a simple, we fix your blood glucose level and leave. It's okay. Let's explore why you became hypoglycemic. And are we all confident today? You just took your insulin and forgot to eat. Okay. Right. That's the story. All right. No reason to pay for the, for the, for the taxi ride and, and going to the hospital and all that other stuff. Cause it's over. It's one of those medical things that once it's over, it's over. Right. I know my daughter had a seizure once when she was first diagnosed and we, it was a Sunday afternoon and we had just gotten back from somewhere and put her in a crib and she was, um, she was napping after a car ride and she just started grunting and, you know, it was clear she was having a seizure. We're trying to figure out how to use the glucagon. She'd only had diabetes for a short time. We didn't know what we were doing. We got our son, who I think at the time was like seven. We got him to call nine one one, and we were messing with it. The next thing I know, there were a couple of police officers in the house, and then the, and then you know the emergency um, services were right behind them. And once we got her stabilized, we went to the hospital, and I think we were there for five minutes before my wife looked at me and went, "We didn't need to come here." And I was like, "No, we didn't, did we?" And then by then it was too late. They had our insurance card already, and we already took the ride, so we just went over mm-hmm. it. And it was fascinating how little actually happened at the hospital, where they were just like, "Well, she looks good now. See yeah. ya." Yeah, you know, yeah. trying to do that again. It was sort of like that. Well, and that's a big trend in EMS. Not to go too far down the EMS tangent, but I, I do want to say that EMS is evolving, and that the more education that paramedics are getting, the more independent they can be in making those decisions about where's the right, what's, where's the right place for the patient, right? We used to be, there's kind of a saying, you call, we haul, right? You just call us, we're going to the hospital because we can't think for ourselves. Now um, with more education, really good physician oversight, we can have longer discussions about what's going on and, and create a plan that's right for you today. And not just this prescriptive, like everybody goes to the ER thing. Got it. Hey, um, a lot of people ask this question. When someone has a low blood sugar, you figured out they have a low blood sugar and they need food. Mm. Is it common to over-carbohydrate them, like to jam them up and make them super high? Because the people who are normally pretty cognizant about keeping their blood sugar stable in a lower range, who've just had what they consider to be a, you know, an emergency situation, they are not looking for you to make their blood sugar 450. But are you? Are you... What what is your goal? (laughs) I love your question. I love the way you asked it. Yes, we are thrilled that you're no longer hypoglycemic. But so if we're going to err, we're going to err on the side of you maintaining consciousness and not becoming hypoglycemic. So sometimes, yes, that means we overshoot it. Like you're not going to show up and go, hey, try these three Skittles and wait 15 minutes and let's see what happens. You're going to, right. You're going to, usually it's like pour, you know, bring some orange juice put some sugar in it. You know, it's like, (laughs) it gets ridiculous. Um, But we also give intravenous dextrose. Okay. Right. So um, for patients that can't eat, can't swallow, I know there's something that you haven't talked about yet, which is you've talked about glucagon. You've talked about oral kind of um, sugar, but then there's also intravenous, what we call D50. It's 50% water, 50% sugar. It's a lot of talking about carb loads. So we used to just give like the whole thing. Now we've started kind of giving half of it and then wait and see how that does. And not, we we do, we are cognizant of the fact of trying not to overshoot them so, so much. Cause that's, that's rough on you guys. Yeah. It's terrible. And then I wonder too, with all the new technology that people with diabetes are wearing, um, 
it's a lot of people have continuous glucose monitors. So mm-hmm. an ability to see their blood sugar in real time and how it's moving. Do you, will you employ those once you're aware and things have calmed down a little bit? Will you say, Hey, let, let me see your blood sugar. Um, yes. on the, you would. Okay. And we're going to double check it with ours occasionally too. Of course, Yeah. But I mean, it, it, an easy way to say that like this dextrose has gotten you to like 125 and it seems pretty stable. We don't have mm-hmm. to push the rest of this. Yep. I got it. Okay. And well, cool. going along with the clinical presentation too. So it's like we, the number looks good and you are looking better. Right. So f- yeah. So the, the stuff that you would normally do visual check overs, mm-hmm. not just these numbers. Okay. Right. Um, do you have, I, well, obviously I think you do, but when you're teaching your course, what do you tell people about assessing diabetes? Um. We tell tell them many things. It's a whole module. Um, but, you know, some of the teaching points are that this may be the first day that they've realized they have diabetes that they may not have known. Often it results in some emergency to, for them to even become aware. Right. Um, and uh, so that's, that's an important thing for paramedics, I think, to understand that people can be having a diabetic emergency and not even know they have diabetes. Wow. Yeah. I never thought of that. Like they're, everybody's first time is somebody is, mm-hmm. yeah, everybody has a first time and not everybody ends up in the hospital passed out their first time. They might just have some of the symptoms of high blood sugars. Um, yeah. it, it, it's funny. I think so much about the problems we, that people have when they're being diagnosed because doctor's offices, it's, it, it's almost disturbing to hear you talk about, um, how how obvious it is to do a finger stick to check on somebody's general health because they don't do that in doctor's offices. So a lot of mm-hmm. kids get treated for the flu or other stuff like that for a long time and then end up in DKA because no one took the time to just, you know, check their blood sugar very quickly. Um, you know what's interesting about that is I've, I've thought about that same thing because I've got two kids right. and it bugged me that they were, they, I didn't know my kid's blood glucose level at any point in their life until I think maybe they check. There's a, there is a routine routine screening age. I think they finally do check. I don't remember if it's four or eight or what, but it did bug me. Yeah. It's a huge problem. There's a lot of different um, organizations that try to help. There's these letter writing campaigns that go to like pediatricians offices and all these things, because a lot of kids, you know, there are people who die every year from undiagnosed type one diabetes. And really, you know, when you look back on it and you realize that for whatever a test trip costs a dollar, maybe you know, that somebody just kept treating the flu, the flu, the flu, the flu, and never looked that next step is, it's, it, it's disturbing. And it, that's why I felt, I found it really comforting and interesting that you were like, oh, we would just do that all the time. That's a great oh, way to it's find out. routine. It is. Yeah. I mean, it's not only are paramedics educated to do that, it is very routine. We work under um, kind of standards of care or protocols that are written. And it is a very standard thing that any altered mental status patient, right? Even if they're just a little confused, um, a little grumpy, sleepy, lethargic. So not just unresponsive, but altered mental status, that it is a very routine uh, test. Yeah. And, you know, you said it's inexpensive. It's also low risk. It, there is very little risk. It's not, it is very hard to hurt someone with a lancet. Right, right, yeah. You're going to be okay. <laughs> Um, yeah. That, that, that's, <laughs> it's a high yield, low risk uh, test. It makes sense. So when people have uh, higher blood sugar, say you get there and you assess them and they're not in DKA, but their blood sugar is 500. Do you help them? Get, like, do you want them to have insulin 
or do you leave it to them or do you just say hey look you don't have enough insulin what if you get them what if you have to transport them do you carry you don't ca- do you carry insulin with you so it's a great question we yeah. generally in the out of hospital setting paramedics are not using insulin no and it's because it's a very strong drug that does other things besides move glucose into the cell. It also affects other electrolytes and things like that. So abrupt changes, if someone's really hyperglycemic and they take a ton of insulin that can do a lot of other things to their body besides just fixing their blood glucose level. Uh, as I said earlier, and, and you guys who li- are listening know, it's a, these are very critical care, um, very fragile sick patients. And so insulin is not a very common out of hospital uh, medication yeah. that's used. I can think of a few maybe remote places where it's used, but nope, not on the trucks in, in Central Texas. Would you turn to the person and say, look, you have insulin here. You should probably take it as your doctor has instructed. Or do you know what I mean? Like you're obviously not going to to give it to them, I guess, because you don't nope. know any of the ratios. I wouldn't or- even know. I don't even know all the scales and all that stuff. I don't know. know how to do it. Yeah. Um, I would be, because of kind of my lack of knowledge about, you know, how much insulin it takes to get someone's blood glucose level. To me, 500 is the number you use is a pretty scary one. And I would be afraid it's not just simple hyperglycemia. I'd be worried, is there more going on? And, um, I would not be comfortable if they, if they, so usually if someone's called EMS, that means they're sick, they don't feel well. (laughs) So to also see a blood glucose level of 500, it's like, okay, I want to make sure you get screened for many things at the hospital that, I don't, um, I feel a little out of, out of my, uh, my gonna, zone on that the one. The word purview kept coming into my head. Like that's outside mm-hmm. of your purview. What were you talking about? A little about? bit, yeah, be- yeah. just because it's like 500, you're pretty sick. And if, depending on your clinical presentation, right, if you look really sick, yeah. um, there may be more. I guess you have one done. problem you're dealing with. You don't need to add a secondary problem before you get somebody to help. Right. But but it's just interesting. Like it, you really are there for an emergency situation. So if somebody called you in that scenario, you got there and said, look, you know, this is what your blood sugar is. It looks like you, you probably need to be checked for a number of different things. I can take you to the hospital if you want, or you should make your way to your own physician. Or I guess there's a lot of different. It's interesting. Your job is very specific. Yeah. We, yeah. we talk about paramedics are healthcare navigators. So they're not just responding to emergencies. They're responding to people that aren't sure what to do next with wherever, however they found their condition to be. And that so maybe they're new, newly diagnosed and they're not very good at taking their insulin. If it's daytime and we can call their doctor and talk through all of that, then yeah. sure. But right. if it's in the middle of the night and, um, can't get a hold of people, then maybe then the hospital becomes the way to yeah, go. Yeah. And you've, you know, maybe they have a headache to go along with it. Well, headache can be a lot of things that I can't test for, like right. um, meningitis or strokes, right? So there's so many things in the out of hospital setting that we can't test for that we do end up taking a lot of people uh, to the hospital for additional testing when, you know, we can't really get in touch with their primary care physician. Do people try to use you improperly? Meaning, do you ever get to people, and this is away from diabetes, I'm wondering this, and they clearly need a hospital, but don't want to go to the hospital. You have no power over that, right? If I refuse to go, I just, that's it. Correct. If you don't want to go to the hospital, I'm not kidnapping you and taking you anywhere you don't want to (laughs) go. As long as you have um, mental capacity, right? So as long as you aren't um, incredibly intoxicated or unresponsive or something in a way that you like you're not making your judgments impaired so you can make medical judgments about their ability to make judgments for themselves mm-hmm. so if and, i say and we we do it a 
objectively with, with tests, like, do you know what day it is, right? right? Do you, can you explain to me what's wrong with you today and that you're preferring to stay home and you understand that you might become worse and die here in your home or you, and if you, they can explain it back to me, then. Then that's it. Everybody's got their own freedom. But now if I say, <laughs> I don't want to go to the hospital, then I pass out. Are you allowed to go? Oops. Oh, well. And then put them in the truck. <laughs> it is called, it's, um, that's called implied consent. And the idea is that the reasonable person would want to go to the hospital if they had known they were about to become unresponsive. Right. Yeah. Oh, I, that all makes sense to me. Okay. Um, <laughs> is there anything I didn't, ask you or that we didn't talk about that I should have to answer these questions for people, which by the way, started out with, um, our medical tattoos. Okay. And then turned into all these great questions from everybody. <laughs> um, um, I think, you know, you're asking, how does, how do you signal to, uh, somebody coming to your home that someone in the house has diabetes? I think, probably the top places are a bracelet in your wallet. The refrigerator is another place we go look um, on the front of the refrigerator. People will put lists of medications and stuff. Yeah. So my, my, my last question, which a lot of people ask because of the timing of when I put this out and into the community and when everybody started asking the questions, there had been something in the news recently where a gentleman had a, a very low blood sugar and the, uh, I guess the people who showed up at his house were just certain he had OD'd mm. and would not listen to the other people in the house about it. W what do I like? What do I do if, if like, really, like, is there something you can think of that would snap you out of that mentality if you were thinking this is drugs, this is drugs, and I knew for certain it wasn't? Like, what do I do to get you to stop thinking that way? Because timing's a real issue at that point. Yeah, I love the question because you're talking about just cognitive pitfalls. It's not that these people are jerks, right? The medics that come to your home, they got into EMS because they want to help people and they're not just jerks, but they can, if they've run, you know, maybe they're in a community with an opioid epidemic and they're, you know, that's 20, 20 calls back to back to back to back. They kind of get, their brain gets stuck, as you said. So what can you do to get them unstuck? There's this really great book called How Doctors Think. And it, it might be something, you know, if any of your listeners, um, are interested how doctors think is really neat because it talks about how clinical decisions are made and it's recommended to ask of your doctor what else could this be okay and that's that's phrasing that gets them to start thinking a different way mm -hmm. it's like okay right now you're thinking overdose but what else could this be and it just opens up their brain to um the possibility and a reminder of the fact that other conditions can look just like this. Ah, so you're tricking them into doing their job that they are somehow yeah. stuck and can't figure out how to do. I love language. I, I, yeah. I really do. I, I, I think sometimes I get done an episode of this show and um, I'll listen back when I'm editing and think like, I'm proud of myself of how I got someone to something without mm -hmm. telling them to go to it or, or, fooling them into understanding it, but just sort of asking a question that mm -hmm. makes them then think about something different and then see where it leads them. And that's really what you're saying. You're, somebody gets stuck on this idea, this guy, he OD'd, he OD'd, he OD'd, he's drunk or whatever. And you start, you just kind of break that, you break that, that pattern he's stuck in or he or she are stuck in. And then you, you get them thinking about something different. That's kind of brilliant and simple, isn't it? <laughs> Another pitfall is that we forget it can sometimes be two things. And so it could be opiates in this case and diabetes. The patient could be having experiencing both. Right. 
And that's probably one of the harder things because we love the binary. It's this or that. And um, it's like the most human thing. Pick one. Who wins? Mm -hmm. Either or. Black or white. Right. Yeah, it it right. can't be both. But like, can I not be high and my blood sugar be low? No. Right. He's a good guy. It's his blood sugar. Yeah. yeah. Just like, yep. no, no I, oh, I hear that. I have and such once a problem we, with that. Once too. we find the cause, it, there's something called the, I think it's called the second fracture phenomenon where let's say you your arm hurts and you've been in some type of car wreck and they find a fracture in the arm. They're like, ooh done testing, we found the cause. Well, sometimes there's a second fracture that gets yeah. missed on the x-ray that they just don't see because they think they found the, the cause. So same for this. Oh, it's almost like anecdotal evidence. Like you feel like you've got the answer. So you stop wondering. Yeah. Gotcha. This is excellent. And now it's making me if I can get, making me wonder if I can get Jerome Groupman, the author of How Doctors Think, to come on the show. Uh, because that's, I think, this that this specific thought translates into people's personal doctor's visits. Oh, when, yeah. You know, when you get into the room and you realize, like, you've got this whole thing figured out and they don't see it that way. And then you just sit there feeling defeated. And instead of another an one, answer. as you're saying that, another one I've used um, with my own doctor is I'll say, um, How do we know it's not X? Right. So I have asthma sometimes. And um, I'll say to my doctor, How do I, how do we know it's not pneumonia? Or how do we know this isn't, um, whatever other respiratory disease. Yeah. And you're not asking so much for him to tell you how he doesn't know you're asking him. So he'll think it through again. Think of all the tests that yeah. might need to be done or not done. God yeah. Damn ginger. You're pretty smart. This That's is true. That's sneaky. <laughs> By the way, you live in the part of the country that I often tell my wife, we should run away and go live there. But I guess other people think that too. And you're probably all very sick of us coming there. So I won't say it out loud, <laughs> but <laughs> Well, you're very welcome to come. Thank you. I'm looking for lower humidity, not so much snow. Is this the place or no? There is uh, pretty low humidity and definitely no snow. I'm on my way. Yes. Um, all right. Just give me your address and I'm just, I'm going to pack up right now and get there because <laughs> I am tired of the snow and I am tired of sweating just because it's uh, June. So <laughs> I'm done with it now. I don't mind a dry heat. I just don't want to be mm -hmm. wet while it's happening. You understand. Okay. Um, hey, tell everybody about your podcast. Sure. It's called Medic Mindset. And what's neat is it started as a podcast for paramedic students, but the paramedics started listening. And then I got some um, medical directors who are emergency medicine physicians listening. And so suddenly emergency medicine kind of residents or med students started listening. So it's, it's expanded to, to a reach beyond kind of its original intention. And it's, um, it's, I, I release about one episode a month. It's something I really enjoy just talking to paramedics or people that work in emergency medicine about, how they think through problems, um, errors they've made, uh, why we, you know, what, kind of the cognitive theory about why they may have made that That's error. That's very cool. And it, isn't it interesting how you start something like that and then it grows and it mm -hmm. finds other avenues to help people. And like I told you at the very beginning, I started this podcast because I thought my blog was kind of dwindling because people stopped reading and um, mm -hmm. it's got millions of downloads now. It's I love it. It's crazy, isn't it? Like I just, yeah. I love that it helps people and, uh, it was just a very unexpected treat, I guess, at how well it worked out. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad for you. And I'm going to, I'll put a link in the show notes and, and hopefully there's some people listening to this that, that might come over and check you out too. Nice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for being, by the way, as we're, as we're wrapping up here, thank you for being how you are because I just was at my son's baseball game one day and I decided like, I'm going to get somebody on to talk about this who, who's got a podcast that, that talks about this stuff all the time. And so I'm have my headphones in 
and I'm sitting in a chair under some shade because, like I said, it was humid. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, here's one. And I tried listening. It's a couple of people, and they're just, you know. But I got to you, and you were measured and thoughtful, and you had a nice, clean microphone. I could understand you. And then I started reading, like, reviews. And then I just started listening to an episode. And I was like, I would like it if this person was on my show. So you won out. I didn't just, like... I didn't throw a dart at, at podcasts about this. I, I, I really listened, and I think you're doing a really great job. Not that what I think means much, but it, Well, it, no, it's I appreciate obvious. that. I mean, it actually means a ton because um, you, you're a podcaster yourself, so you know kind of what you value. And, and talking to you, what this has done, I was hoping to get to hear more about your daughter and your journey. So what this has done is made me now want to go back and, and hear your previous episodes oh cool yeah i do everything so that people will listen everything's just a, a carrot on a stick to get you to download my show <laughs> i need <laughs> listeners damn it keep listening <laughs> tell people no um but but seriously i appreciate that it, uh mm-hmm. i'd be happy to tell you more about it but i know we're up on time um and I, you have children who i think at one point i heard outside going hey when's this over <laughs> so uh, go live your life and thank you very much and uh i really i can't thank you enough this was wonderful Thanks, Scott. I appreciate you having me on. Oh, absolutely. Hey, huge thank you to Ginger for coming on the show. And thanks so much to Dexcom and Omnipod for sponsoring this episode of the Juicebox podcast. You can go to myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox to get a free, no obligation demo of the Omnipod tubeless insulin pump. And to learn more and get started with the Dexcom G6, go to dexcom.com forward slash juice box and please don't forget to visit touchedbytype1.org there are links to all of the sponsors in the show notes of your podcast player and at juiceboxpodcast.com would you like to hear more from ginger check out medic mindset wherever podcasts are available or go to medicmindset.com Her show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere that you listen to this show, you can listen to Ginger and Medic Mindset.